0: Welcome dear friends to the Now Next Podcast, navigating your meaningful now and your meaningful next. I'm one of your three co-hosts, Sammy DiBiasso. Hi
1: Sammy. Oh, I'm one of your co-hosts. I'm Drew.
2: Did you forget that about your job for a hot second?
1: No, I was just, I was just being funny. Okay. I
2: I don't know. I just wanted to be mean because my name is Mary (laughs) Claire Kunkel. (laughs) I don't know if anyone else said their last name, but I'm a human. I'm a senior undergraduate student here. I'm the one who edits it all and is sassy and mean, I guess, now. And she's the only one with
1: the last name, which is really I Yeah,
2: incredible. everyone else, they just fly under the Actually, I'm sure I
0: said Dibiasso. Awesome. <laughs> you did. I'm the only one
1: who didn't say a last name. Okay. Was...
2: <laughs> I'm going to keep all of this in. I, just, so.
1: I got caught. Here we are. This podcast is where we emphasize... Vocation, the idea that you are called to meaningful life giving work in the world. In fact, vocation is any meaningful life giving work in the world. And we do that through a number of different dispositions through discovery and discernment and development and decision making. And we talked about all of that in our first few episodes. But that is not a linear process, it's not something that we do in simply a step by step basis. Instead, it's something that happens at many different junctures along the path. Because when you discover something, you might also find yourself discerning its value or developing a skill. And each time you make a decision, it leads to new discoveries.
2: And here to chat with us this episode is Ellie Watchman. Ellie is a proud 2020 alum of Capital University. Earning a degree in mathematics, she played basketball and helped establish the Capital Bonner Leader Program. She is now studying for her master's in international development at American University and continues to grow her nonprofit, Sakona Rescue Center. All around, just cool as hell. Ellie, we're so excited to have you here. Well, today, this week, we are talking about you are called to specific actions that are meaningful and life giving for the world. So we're centering around with vocation, you are called to something, to round out our whole second season and this this is the specific ways you find meaning and give life to you know your vocation the ways that you're operating in the world and the meaningful part is primarily directed at you and the life-giving part is primarily directed at the world and there are a number of things that we do that are life-giving for others even if they might drain us of energy for a little bit of period of time they're still meaningful to us it just means we might have to recharge a little bit so it's not always energizing things it's things that make us feel like we're making a difference and this can be discovered through you know internships student teaching practicums that sort of intentional experience that you might have to test things out and so it kind of harkens back to with the 4d faith model of discovery where you're trying new things you're also developing with practicing. And it's all about what we talked about a couple of weeks ago with something you're called with the full identity of yourself. So I'll let Drew talk a little bit more about how this manifests.
1: So here's the thing. Sometimes these things that we are called to are not clear to us at first, but there are people that speak life into us, that there are others who speak into us a purpose or a meaning or a clarity that we didn't have in ourselves. And so that's where, when we talked about that we're called through something, through our communities, through those people who see something in us that maybe we aren't aware of, who open something in us that maybe we didn't know was possible. So I'm curious if you all have a time that you can share where someone spoke life into you, spoke purpose into you in a way that was surprising or in a way that was life giving for you, in a way that clarified what you were called to do.
2: I have one, and it's one that I suppress for a very long time. I was part of an organization called Summer Impact and there was one night, it was kind of a testimony, it was kind of a sermon. And after each week, one of the youth leaders or pastors came up to me and they're like, You're really good at this. You have a gift for this. And I was like, oh, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to do any of this stuff. And it still kind of stuck with me. And I realized just because I'm good at storytelling and integrating that with my faith doesn't mean I have to be a pastor. I can bind that with my other skills of liking research and liking liking, you know, media production and kind of create my own thing with all of my different skills, some that I discovered and some that other people identified in me.
0: I love that, Mary Claire, because this sense of like, someone has spoken something to you, and yet those words were powerful enough to help guide you in a way that wasn't maybe necessarily what they were specifically saying, but like led you still to more vocational discernment. I would say for me, I don't know if we've talked about this on the pod, but prior to my time at Capitol University, I was a undergraduate, what a concept at Virginia Tech and the Reverend Tucker, was my university pastor for my, I didn't call him Reverend at the time. It was just Drew. Was still just Drew.
1: I just saying, you still don't call me Reverend, and please don't. <laughs>
0: And it was my senior year, 2016. I was trying to discern what I was called to next. And I had applied to the Young Adult and Global Mission Program with the ELCA. Was unsure. I was going back and forth. I didn't know what to do. And so I asked Pastor Drew, like, can we talk about this? Can we meet? And we had lunch at the best place in Blacksburg, Virginia, Slovakis, in case you were wondering. And I was like, you know, I don't really know what I want to do. And he was like, well, I, I think you know what you want to do and you're you're pro- you're going to do this program and i was like oh i did know that but i like needed him to say that and like to call me towards like what i knew and to call me to something which was the next step.
1: I also miss Slovakis. Ellie, how about you? Yeah,
3: I have a very similar story. In the Bonner Leader Program, my freshman year, I was nominated by, to this day, I still don't know whom, um, but I am eternally grateful. I received an email application to this very ambiguous, but grand idea of starting a program that would bring in traditionally underserved, disadvantaged, or just generally diverse groups of students to come in and engage in meaningful Community service around our campus. And they were inviting me to sort of take part in leading that. So without knowing to even that degree of what I was signing up for I had someone tell me that I demonstrated the qualities of good leadership on campus. And as a freshman at 18, I was like, I really don't know about that. I'm not sure where you're getting that. And as someone who has, you know, a good amount of social anxiety, I was like, I don't know that this is the right decision for me either. Confrontation isn't my strong suit. Like, I really just like when people are happy. (laughs) But to my great avail, I ended up turning the application in uh, the night that it was due just on a whim saying, you know, if nothing else, send it into the world. Let's just say yes until I figure out it's not the right thing to do. So I said yes, and it ended up being one of the most life-giving experiences of my life. Um, And I love, Mary Claire, that you said, you know, it doesn't have to be something that like necessarily gives you energy. Like it does give, it gave me energy in so many ways, but in many others, it was it was very draining. Um, it pushed me, it challenged me to become more of a leader, to accept confrontation in you know healthy ways and sort of develop an inner confidence in who I am and what my purpose is. So for that, to whomever nominated me, <laughs> many, many thanks.
1: One of the reasons I love asking questions is because you can never quite anticipate how answers will arise. So I had never thought of those situations where someone had called you to something, but you wouldn't know who that someone was. I like it was clearly somebody who knew you and clearly someone who valued you, but not someone who had told you that that was a specific way they were going to call you into something potentially. There's a lot of ways that this has happened to me in life. I was in college and I had a professor who wrote a recommendation letter for me. And I just respected the world out of this person because he was so meaningful in my life, formative in my life, brilliant. And I asked for a recommendation letter for something entirely unrelated to academics, entirely unrelated to doing a further work. And in that recommendation letter, he said, Drew has the skills and the abilities that if he so chooses he could go on and get a PhD in this and I was like but that's not what I asked you for that's not what I wanted you to say that's not what this was about it was some ministry related thing I don't know and that became for me ultimately something that I knew I wasn't called to but it was such an important place for me to reflect on I could be called to it. And so at many points, I came to a, a juncture where I thought about, will I do PhD work, will I pursue this or will I go on internship? Will I do PhD work, will I pursue this or will I go into my first call? Will I do this or will I choose instead the road to a demon, which is what I'm doing now? And it was that strange way of someone speaking a call into my life that ultimately wasn't the call, but it showed that the option was there and that lots of good roads were available, but that I didn't need to take all of them. And so that for me was just so, it was powerful. And it was, it's still kind of haunting to think about that because again, I'm like, I'm like, what am I writing in people's recommendation letters? Maybe I should do better. Part of that though, both in Ellie, I think your story and in our sense of understanding our calls is there's a kind of mystical knowing. There's this sense that we know that we're called to something. Sammy, your story about knowing it, but not quite having the words for it. Mary Claire, your resistance at times to that. There's this sense that we know no, we are called, but it's not quite clear yet. It's maybe not exactly why or how, but that we have a part in a larger mission that through our particular behaviors, through our families, through our citizenship, through our jobs, that we want to contribute to something beyond ourselves. That's why we f- focus a lot on the transcendent sense of call, that that our call is that we are called to something particular, but that particular thing is connected to a greater story. That particular thing is connected to meaning beyond the meaning that we attach to our vocations. And so these personal sharings these things that we have that we're called to is not only about one small narrow piece of the pie, but it's about the whole thing, the entire dessert. I might just be using that analogy because I'm kind of hungry. I don't know, but it seems, it seems possible. But one of the other vital things there, and one of the things we have to remember, and one of the things that each of you have shown me in your different ways is that we're not just called to one thing and we're not just called to our jobs, but we have of vocations. There are so many different things that we are called to. I mean, I think of you as a student, Ellie, and you were called to like 38,000 at different times, honor, athletic life in your student life, as you were considering what you were called to after your family life, being a part of a family. You had so many different vocations and yet you lived all of them in some kind of way layered. And that's a difficult thing to do. Um, I think about all of our, all of our reflections on being sailors on on traversing this journey across the seas and not every ship was full of people that had one thing in mind they were people that were explorers that wanted to discover things that were new to them there were people that were merchants that wanted to bring back things to sell there were people that were looking for a way out of economic hardship or oppression and so this was an act of liberation and so all of these different ways that people inhabit those journeys open us up to the ways that even in our own process, even in my time at Capital, I'm not here for just one reason. I'm not here doing just one thing. There is a whole host of vocations that we carry in ourselves. So I, this is not a part of the episode plan, but I'm just going to ask. This is what you should not do, your co-host, Selly. But I'm curious if we would all be willing to name three vocations that we think we have right now that we're living in simultaneously.
2: For me, it would be a Christian and wrestling with everything that that entails and all of the history and all of the possible future. Um, a storyteller and those two are very bound together and then this is going to sound really vague but just like a person who is around other people so like being a partner being a daughter being a student just interacting with other people and you know trying to communicate effectively and like not let people down and learn from each other and just share life together
0: I was going to say the same Mary Claire I as soon as you asked Pastor Drew the first thing that came to mind for me was an older sister I I have such a great younger brother and we are such a good support system for one another and so just being an older sister and in relationship with my brother is a vocation that I have simultaneously with being a classmate like a co-learner with my and with my friends and just exploring and not and doing those things outside the classroom too right like going on walks with classmates and just talking about things that we're doing outside of class uh, is also part of my vocation and just being a friend. I think with that too, some of my vocation is also being a naturalist. That sounds very scientific and I'm zero percent scientific. Being outdoors and loving how I'm currently seeing spring evolve and grow. Part of my vocation is like exploring and just going outside.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, Pastor Drew, that you You specifically asked for three because I I almost see, you know, my purpose at this point, my vocation is three-pronged, you know, being a pivot, being a leverage for the redistribution of knowledge and wealth and love to help, you know, support people who get the short end of the stick um, and to help people with more understand where their privilege lies. But with that too, in being that sort of pivot point, you also have to be sort of a conduit, like you need to build those connections, you need to bring peace to others through that way, and, you know, enable communication, as well as invest in your own growth. Um, So a large part of what I'm doing right now in my studies, I'm, you know, it feels very vocational, because I'm pursuing additional knowledge, I'm pursuing building my own capacity in order to be a better leverage in order to be a better conduit, and then also to better just support others. Um, so from the bottom up, just lifting others to see their fullest potentials as well as I'm pursuing the same. So it's it's interesting that you, you know, you said it to choose three because it divided very cleanly for me that way.
1: I'm so happy that that happens for you because that never happens for me. So as long as it happens for someone, I'm really here for it. I think for me, the the three that are most present in my life right now are that of a partner or a husband, as you know. Michelle and I have been together now for over a decade, married and even longer dating, which feels just bonkers. can't believe I've done anything for 10 years in a row. But then secondly, uh, a child, uh, my parents are aging. I mean, they're still great. They still live independently. They're not old old but they have gotten into those points where I need to be more involved in their lives and that's something that is a part of my calling in a way that I wasn't expecting honestly at this point in life but not because it wasn't there but because I wasn't paying attention but then third and maybe this is obvious but pastoring is really a vocation that for me has been a part of my life since 2011 in campus ministry and so I feel very much like I am not settled in those places, but comfortable in those places, even as I'm finding new ways to pastor and I'm finding new ways to be a spouse and finding new ways to be a child. And I think that's part of this, this holistic sense of vocation is just because you might inhabit it for many years of your life doesn't mean it's the same way your whole life. You know, I, I sure imagine that you all operate differently in your callings than you did 10 years ago, even if they're the same one as a sibling or as, I love this idea of, of a pivot Ellie, right? That that kind of leverage place. I also imagine your siblings saw you leveraging in different ways when you were younger, but that's, that's neither here nor there. The reality of being a sibling and using using some of those things to your advantage. But I just love that our vocations, even as they're different, they work together in growing in themselves and growing us.
2: Now we are going to turn to really diving into our interview with our guests who you just heard a little bit from, Ellie
0: Watchman. So Sammy, take it away. So Ellie, as you know, and in this conversation so far, we've talked about like the specific actions that are meaningful and life-giving to the world are the things that we are called to. And so we're wondering if you could share with us some practices that are especially life-giving for you. And if in some way, do they intersect? in parts of your identity.
3: Yeah, absolutely. It's an interesting question. And much to Pastor Drew's point about how these are, you know, ever evolving and they can change, you know, from day to day, year to year, decade to decade, I think in the pandemic, my life-giving practices have shifted a lot. Being a community leader, community organizer was a huge part of my identity and very life-giving, as was, you know, athletics, playing on a team for other people, for a school. Um, so it's it's a lot harder now to connect with people or see them face to face, which is a lot of the activities that have been life giving to me. So I guess. The shift then for me in individual practices has been a lot of letter writing and gift giving, even if, you know, breaking traditional norms of, you know, sending a a present or, you know, a package with something that someone wants, like really taking the time to understand other people, to try and empathize with other people, which is very hard to do, you know, over Zoom, but still in this day and age, taking time to both listen and then express yourself uh, through like I said, letter writing and getting conversation, it's how I've sort of adapted most recently.
0: Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I love that because it really emphasizes again, like what, how we've been talking about, like we're called to things, but that doesn't always have to be the same. And sometimes like those practices don't always have to be the same. Sometimes we have to shift and adapt to things that are life-giving. I mean, even if we're thinking in the context of the pandemic too, right? Like those things, have changed based off of what we can and cannot do that can be life-giving for us something else we've kind of been wondering is what is it like having a part of your family legacy tied to an institution like capital
2: because I remember when I was working on the project capital in the 60s and it was during homecoming I like ran into your mom and then it like all of a sudden she was like Yeah, like both sides of the family are just like so many generations and our daughter goes to Capitol. And that was the first time that I ever like knew that you're a human. So (laughs) I'm really captivated by that because I just know way too much about Capitol's history. So I just want to throw that in there.
3: Yes. Well, you and I both knowing many parts of Capitol history in different ways. But yes, to give a a more explicit history where I'm fifth generation on both sides of the family, so my mom's and my dad's. My mom's may have skipped one generation, but my dad's we've traced back through consistently, my great-great-great-grandfather, and I've had, you know, both aunts and uncles on both sides all went to Capitol except for one, and I had the honor of going to school with cousins and with my sister, so being a part of that legacy is beyond words. It's that Mystique of you know vocation that Drew touched on earlier as well is you know sometimes you can't exactly just describe it um, but it absolutely was one of the very crucial components of why I knew that Capital was right for me is because it just made sense. In the terms of i felt whole being here i felt whole fulfilling the tradition i felt a different sort of connectedness and pride and it it also was just sort of instilled in me growing up it just the missions and values of capital very much relate to the missions and values that i grew up on from my parents which is unsurprising but it just sort of seemed like an extension of who i am and what i wanted to do in the world so it just it made sense.
2: (laughs) Did having that legacy ever make you feel like there was pressure for you to do something you knew you were not called to as a result? Or was it always that sense of fulfilling tradition and that wholeness?
3: That's a great question. As a rebellious teen, (laughs) I would have told you, I'm no, there's no way I'm giving into my pressure, like into the pressure of my parents, like I'm not going to capital, like I want to, you know, spread my wings and do something else. But then, as I, you know, went through the college admissions process and exploring, I realized that there really wasn't that much of a pressure from my family. As I really truly felt that that they would have loved me and supported me no matter what I chose, it almost made it a very good reverse psychology on their part. If there was pressure, <laughs> because very quickly as I, I felt that sort of self-perpetuated pressure release. I realized that they really would have supported me no matter what. And then I was able to see the immense opportunity that it was to be a part of this tradition.
2: How do you motivate yourself to start projects? Because you're a part of a bunch of really cool stuff. And I really struggle with motivation and getting over the initial hump of doing things. So I'm just curious if you have any advice on that and then maintaining those life-giving projects. Yes,
3: absolutely. So as I briefly alluded to earlier, I would say that it's, A large part of it is saying yes to everything, saying yes to everything until you figure out that it's definitely not what you want to do. I think that sort of mindset, that sort of optimism, positive framing on life will get you to a lot of the places that you realize you didn't want to go um, and in turn, you know, help create success for you. You know, like you said, (laughs) a large part of it is just taking the leap, so to speak. And my parents will tell you since I was a kid that I have been a boundary pusher. And as I've grown, it has become much more uh, respectful (laughs) and deliberate just in the fact that you need to take the mindset of, yes, I can. Like I, I will do whatever it is until you figure out like either, no, that's not right for me or that's not appropriate in this scenario, it, it very much aligns with my yes until it's proven no rule and that you know, you're know you going to continue forward, prove the unprovable, do the impossible until you figure out it's impossible. Then you redirect, then you course correct. And, and that for me has been sort of a very helpful and guiding principle and you know, navigating the world.
2: As far as saying yes to all of those things and just kind of going and going and going do you ever get burnt out or we have all these nautical themes so like seafaring fatigue but just like ugh, I just want to stop I don't want to have to do all these things anymore and then any tips and tricks how to deal with that as well
3: yes absolutely so seafaring fatigue is real I embrace it, you you live with it, but it also comes with the sort of life-fulfilling vocation that we talked about. You, you do need to endure some of it in order to truly know if what you're doing is worthwhile. Now, determining... You know, what is too much fatigue and closer to burnout versus, you know, what is just an investment for greater fulfillment? That's a fine line. Um, And it's taken a lot of time to really discern that for myself, particularly through college. But it, it sort of came down to realizing the value in the word no and having an inner sense of my own health and being able to put that first. So I I can't give you like a clear analytical solution, a quick step of like, yo, this is too much. This isn't too much or like a rule that I follow other than there's an internal sense of, you know, knowing when something is off, knowing when you're unfulfilled, knowing that you're unhappy and having the courage to, to change that. By saying yes to something new or by saying no to something that really isn't bringing you that sense of joy that you're seeking.
0: That's so powerful, Ellie. I really appreciate that because that brings us back to how embodied we are in our bodies and how like we need to listen to our bodies and like our bodies are good and they're really good at telling us what we should and shouldn't be doing, but like it takes practice to like listen to them. So and how that's tied to our vocational discernment and figuring out the things that we're called to. So, thank you for bringing that to this conversation.
1: Well, and one of the things that I I know about you, Ellie, is that. You as a student athlete dealt with a number of injuries and surgeries related to that kind of struggle with your body telling you maybe like, hey, you're, you're doing things that I wasn't expecting you to do or wanting you to do or, or that I wasn't prepared for. So how did that like, how did you manage all of that and realizing you had to say no to some things for a while that you desperately wanted to say yes to?
3: You put that perfectly. The way I would describe my you know, college athletics experience was that I overloaded my body to a point that it, it was not ready for, it was not prepared for, in many ways, sort of ignored all the warning signs. Um, so stress reactions turned into stress fractures, which turned into, you know, 20 different kinds of stress fractures and different healing points between the two legs and still, you know, even drove that into more and more sort of mental issues as well, like psychological, emotional uh, complications just out of stubbornness because I wanted to say yes so badly. I wanted to be able to contribute on the floor. I wanted to be able to give to the team. I wanted to be able to wear, you know, those letters across my chest. But again, it it was sort of this this moment of Coming to terms with the pain that I was experiencing emotionally and physically and recognizing the cycle, recognizing the history that, you know, things weren't getting better at the at that point in time and I needed to ask for help and I needed to listen to what others around me and what God was telling me and of course you know that resulted in you know surgeries multiple surgeries to repair health physical health that resulted in much mental counseling mental emotional health counseling and in the end I told myself the bottom line is I want to be able to support this team cheer them on I want to be able to be you know a team manager if that's what they need I want to be able to do bigger things in life besides you know basketball as well so that meant digging in, enduring some pain for a while, um, accepting help and really, you know, embracing the other parts of my vocation other than athletics at that one point in time.
1: I appreciate the vulnerability there because I remember how hard that was for you and we didn't know one another that well, even at that point. And so just the the level of difficulty of that journey, but also I'm sure that shaped you as a leader now. Absolutely. I think truthfully, I
3: don't... (laughs) It's interesting because, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that kind of pain on my worst enemy, but I do truly believe that that pain, that discomfort is what's given me a greater sense of empathy and understanding uh, for others and patience and compassion. And I think fundamentally that is my, my drive, my foundation in the sort of leadership that I'm aiming to pursue, you know, in creating change. And wanting to create change. It comes from an understanding of, you know, what other people are experiencing, what you're experiencing and trying to, you know, merge the two. So in that process, it was incredibly painful. And I am incredibly thankful to have had the support system I did have and to have persevered to where I'm at now, because I do truly feel like I have a better sense of myself and with a better sense of myself and, you know, the range of my own emotions, you know, pain and joy, um, I can, you know, try to understand others' uh, spectrum as well.
1: There's a quote that floats around that I'm never quite sure who actually said it first, but it's the idea that in God's economy, nothing is wasted. You know, as you said, you wouldn't wish that pain on your worst enemy. It's not like, you know, I would not say that God made that happen to you. I don't think God works that way. But I also do think God enters into those places where we're suffering or where we are experiencing, I mean, failure or pain or oppression or those areas where we are experiencing what is clearly not God's will. And yet what God does is take those things and put them to good use so that we can leave them and grow into new kinds of abundance. And yeah, that's where I am continually impressed with, with you is that you, I can't imagine going through that and, and being the kind of joy uh that you bring uh and the kind of passion that you bring and so that's where I just see God certainly at work through that and through you for sure so let's turn now to your nonprofit because this is the thing this is the one of the many ways where I was just like you do what and how so tell us about and I think I'm saying right Sakona Rescue Center is that right yep So tell us about how you founded this in the first place.
3: Yes. So ironically enough, you know, it dates back to, you know, those trials and challenges. This summer, immediately after, you know, I was told that I would never be able to run again, hopefully walk, but it was, they didn't know at the point. You know, I just sort of did this sort of personal (laughs) reckoning of who am I? Like, if I'm not a student athlete, what other things am I called to? And a large part of that I I knew deeply I wanted to be able to empathize with people of all different walks of life and that's something I've had within me since I was young. I'm unashamed to admit that I've struggled with my mental health since I was also young. I think that sort of experience ingrained within me has has given me a curiosity for the different kind of pain that other people endure um, and how we can love and support them in ways that hopefully alleviate that pain and suffering. Within that, I was very curious, you know, to travel the world, to go across continents and seas and whatnot, experience truly what other walks of life were. And I, I happened to get connected with um, an ambassador of Ethiopia who connected me to Kenya. And I walked in with <laughs> no expectations. Like I truly just wanted to immerse myself. There was, there was no sense of these are people in need. Like, let's go start a nonprofit. Like that was not even on my radar. It was truly a sense of, I just want to experience the other side of the world an experience in a culture very different than mine. And I absolutely fell in love with the people. So I went over there and I served over there for seven weeks and found family faster than I've ever found in my entire life. And upon coming home, you know seeing the injustices against them i couldn't make peace with that knowing that i was coming home to you know a clean bed and you know food and water all very easily accessible and you know they still were struggling in the day to day so i kept communication with them and as i i wrestled internally with the injustices of the world it was it was very um <laughs> Existential moment for me there, and in conversations with you know the family, as I said, that I developed over there. They asked if I would help, if I could leverage the power that I do, that I have in you know the global north, in a first world country, be, to be a catalyst for their grassroots movement for a women's empowerment center and uh, children's rescue center. So where we could take in uh, domestically abused women and at-risk children, orphaned from HIV and AIDS. Uh, to give them sort of a shelter, a place to stay, and to really foster their development in the neighboring uh, school and empowerment center. So that it kind of came about from, <laughs> you know, you cut one arm off and, and a whole other arm just sprouted out of this vocation. So <laughs> it, it came about naturally, but also in ways that I could have never predicted.
2: I just really appreciate that and that story because I really like learning about people who are very different than me, but I also have that in my mind of like, I don't want to feed into colonization. Like And just hearing that you developed these relationships and are now being able to make a a difference in that really healthy way. And that like you were asked and that you're leveraging your power, just showing that that's possible, I think is just so just reflective of all things good. So yeah.
3: Oh, gosh, thank you. And I'm, I'm here to tell you that I'm immensely blessed that it, it's, I'm very fortunate to be in the situation that I'm in and to, to have the opportunity to leverage my privilege in the way that I can. So it's, it's definitely not a product of me, but I'm, Immensely blessed to be in the position and take advantage.
1: And the thing that I think is most powerful about that is that you knew you were called because others invited you into that. It was the people on the ground who asked for you to do what you could do, but not to take their place or take their role or inhabit that space instead of them. That level of God's got a cosmic mission beyond all of us that includes all of us, but that it was through one aspect of that that they said, then Ellie, we we could use you to do this thing. What's it like to hear that?
3: It's humbling. It's kind of ground shaking the way that it's it's unsettling almost because whether you realize it or not anyone puts constraints on themselves of what they think is possible and what they think you know their skills and attributes will lead them to and what success looks like for them but to be asked in that way and to have such confidence put into me was both terrifying and so unbelievably just euphoric that like you said to have someone say that you know, they believed that you could get your PhD for someone to ask me to help them do this, that they truly believed in, you know, my capabilities. I was astounded, and it, but at the same time could not be more enthusiastic. I will never forget uh, the day that they asked. I was, I was with a classmate, <laughs> Sam Montanez. We were up, we were up in the CAP Fitness Center uh, when it happened. And I got off the phone and I I was, my jaw was dropped. But 15 seconds later, we were both dancing. Like, it was incredible. It was just this great opportunity in the in the fact that they saw that greatness in me, but also the fact that I was able to see that, that potential in myself as well, that they matched so well. I think that's when I knew that it was a good fit. And
1: how old were you when that happened? How old were you when you got the phone call? <laughs> oh gosh, that would have been, I would have just
3: turned 20.
1: I'm curious, what is it like to discover your calling, discern your values, develop your skills, and decide what your next most faithful step is all before you can legally drink? Like, what is that like to have that happen at that stage of life?
3: I will tell you it was incredibly liberating, but I'll also challenge you in saying that in discovering your vocation, it almost sounds, you know, singular in that aspect. And as we've been talking about, it's always multifaceted and ever-changing, but that absolutely was one moment where i knew like this is this is a great fit this is a great click so it was it was a profound relief of all the anxiety i had had of as a young adult being what am i going to study how am i going to make money like what's going to truly fill me in this life and to know that i had this opportunity in front of me uh, but in the same sense it's also been liberating and just encouraging to know that that's it's not the end all be all that i there are many other facets to who i am and what i do and what I'm passionate about that will help me change the world in the ways that I want to change the world or will help me be the person that I want to be. Yes, that was a profound moment. And I think an even more profound moment was the moment that I realized that this wasn't the one moment of my entire life that I was going to look back on and be like, that's when I knew, like, I did know at that point that that was a great choice, but I also know that there's so many other factors involved.
1: That's so true. And so indicative of what we really think about this process is that like that significant moment was not the last significant moment of your life. It gives context and perspective, but it's not the only thing that makes you who you are. Another interesting thing about your process is that you went to graduate school to study this kind of leadership after you started leading this kind of organization. And a lot of people assume that you have to go to school before you can start to fulfill your purpose, but you kind of reverse that process. So what was it like for your vocation in that way to take shape before you decided what to do next with your life?
3: To answer that question, I think I really, you know, have to go back to the beginning of like how I knew that it was such a great fit for me and how I did find that confidence in, within myself is that I mentioned this before, like, Someone's going to tell you that something's not possible, and I'm going to do it until I learn that I can't. Like until I know for a fact that I can't do it, then it's on the table. I think that sort of drive, that motivation of, you know, who says who says I can't? Why not? Um, is how I I ended up taking, you know, Sakona to where it is and starting it. Pursue every avenue possible. You figure out the ways to success rather than, you know, defining under one imaginative way of why it wouldn't work. So sort of that perpetual positivity of, if this doesn't work, we're going to try the next thing. And within that, as I did like found this organization, I knew these people deserved such responsibility, and there was so much power being placed in me that it was my ethical duty, responsibility to pursue knowledge, to educate myself onto how to do this in the best way possible. Ways to challenge power dynamics that I didn't even realize were at play. So that's, I did end up at American University studying international development Because I had to, like, to me, there was no other choice than broaden my horizons and truly learn, make sure that I had a consistent source of information so that I could know exactly what I was doing and do it
1: with purpose in ways that were the least harmful as possible. You have shared that this is one part of who you are, and you've shared kind of your your thematic sense of those three ways that you inhabit your vocations. So, but tell us more about who, who you are. What makes Ellie, Ellie? What are the things that you are called to that highlights that person that that is a part of meaningful and life-giving work in the world?
3: Maybe the most life-giving experience in my life is seeing somebody else smile. So... Ellie is a goofball. She loves to joke around and see anybody and everybody smile. It doesn't matter for what purpose or, you know, you just have to be able to laugh at yourself and to laugh with others. And the joy in that moment is truly beyond words. So I'm a goofball. I'm very curious. I'm very competitive <laughs> um, as comes out in in the, the athletics. And as my sisters will definitely tell you, I don't know, but I also... I love to listen. So I think a huge part of my vocation is finding a balance between expressing myself in ways that bring smiles and you know be competitive and things that make me happy, but also absorbing the world for what it is through other people and what other people enjoy and other people see, which is, again, a balance that I'm still trying to figure out, but it's it's one that I'm very intentional about.
0: Thank you, Ellie, so much for for sharing all of those things with us and in what makes you you and most certainly we have been smiling in this conversation even though you all can't see that on the podcast and so we're grateful for that one question we've been asking all of our guests as we've been journeying and on this boat in some capacities is what do you wish you knew about vocation as a kid.
3: I would say, if you'll indulge me for just a minute, let me let me geek out into my uh, physics minor, tapping into the, the wave particle duality of quantum physics. I think that I would tell my younger my younger self that your purpose, your vocation, it takes so many different forms. As just as we've been saying, so many different arms. Oh, gosh, I might be getting too deep into it now, but the uncertainty principle that you're never going to be able to, you know, measure the velocity and have the location at the same time, like you're never going to have a discrete answer of this is my vocation. And I think for so long, I was yearning for that and yearning for that when it didn't exist. sets you up for failure. Um, it was a lot of anxiety trying to think, you know, what's this one thing that's going to, to make me happy, that's going to put good into the world. What's this one thing that I was put on this earth to do, but accepting that it's, it's many different things. It takes many different shapes and forms um, and just having the confidence in yourself to, to sense your body and know what those things are in the moment that they're happening. And then at that point, you know, let it go after that and still keep searching. I think that's what I would tell myself to do. As a child, because as a child, I definitely knew what the uh, uncertainty principle and wave particle duality was.
1: (laughs) I was going to say, I love that your answer is, I would teach my nine-year-old self particle physics. (laughs) (laughs) So one, I need to say, it makes my heart so happy that we have encountered physics in the Now Next podcast, because one of the things that kept me a Christian when I was at my most, I think, uh, deconstructed and critical phase was encountering quantum physics and quantum mechanics. And I need to be very clear. I don't understand the math behind it at all. But seeing how in these spaces there is there is a, a an indication for where things like miracles exist within the math because the math simply can't explain everything, I just, like I melted at that moment in realizing that, that you just can't, you can't, as you said, measure the velocity and point it out on the plane at the same time because it's beyond us. There's something that's always beyond us. That transcendent thing is always going to be beyond us. So thank you for for um, opening up the nerd in me just a little bit and for understanding it much more than I do. Because again, I don't do the math part and that's really important for physics.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I just, I can't thank you guys enough for having me on.
2: So it's been
3: The utmost pleasure and honor.
2: Oh, dang. Now you're puffing up our egos. I don't know if we need that.
1: Ellie, thank you so much. This was great. This was so, so great.
3: I don't think I've smiled this big in a long time. So thank you guys, truly.
1: It's humbling to be a part of work where you see people doing things that you could never do but humbling in the very best way, humbling in the way that's inspiring and differentiating and grounding. And that's what I feel as I reflect on our time with Ellie. I'm so grateful that she made time to be a part of this again, to be not just a member of the podcast, but to be a member of the capital community, to carry this legacy of generation after generation, but not be only defined by that legacy, to be called to something, to something very specific that is not just what her family has done, but instead something that God is evoking out of her, that her community is evoking out of her in both North America and in Africa. This kind of work is so humbling because I see that Ellie's call is so different and so unique from my own. But that's exactly the point of being called to something that Ellie's work in my work and so much of the other work that we see through Sammy and Mary Claire and the guests we've had last season and this season that that work is different and yet it's tied up in something so transcendently beautiful. It's tied up in that reconciliation of all things, that working for all things through the good that God does not let Things waste, but instead puts things to purpose. So I am so grateful that I don't understand sometimes how people can do the wonderful good that they do, can live the profound faith that they have. Because in my own experience, in my life, I see how they are contributing to the reign of God in ways that I never could because they're living their vocations, they're activating their purposes in ways that I simply couldn't. So I'm thankful for Ellie. I'm thankful for each of you listening here at the end of the season, imagining what it is that you are going to be called to. Because friends, I hear and know that God's spirit is still calling us all to something, something different, something holy, something powerful, and something needed for our world. So live that thing, that meaningful, life-giving thing that you do for the world in ways that give life to others and inspire meaning within yourself. And I can't wait to see you next time on the Now Next Podcast.
2: Now Next is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Learning at Capital University. Due to the COVID-19 pandemic, this episode was recorded remotely over Zoom. Funding for Now Next is thanks to the generous Philip N. Knutson Endowment in Lutheran Campus Ministry. Our co-hosts are Drew Tucker, Mary Claire Hunkel, and Sammy DiBiasto. Our podcast producer is yours truly, and our seaworthy theme music, Fiddle DD, is by Shane Ivers.